Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, and let's just continue our study there this morning. You know, when we get into really just a great section today, Romans 8, 28, you know, you, you hear that reference all the time. We read that verse a lot. And so, I, you know, I will admit as I get started that really my goal this morning is that of a waiter. And, you know, the, the waiter's job uh, in a restaurant is to simply get the food from the kitchen to the table without spilling it. Right, that's the waiter's job. That's how I view my job this morning. I mean, this, this verse is just so rich with truth that my, hope, my only hope is I don't fumble it too much. And I get some food on your plate by the end of the message today. And so that's the goal. It's just a rich truth. But just to kind of get us ramped up to where we're at, you know, what we've been looking at, is, really starting in about verse 18, is this, this third tense of our one great salvation, which is called glorification, where we're going to be delivered from the very presence of sin. That's going to involve a glorified body. That's going to be, that's going to involve being in the presence of Jesus Christ, where God completes this salvation that he started the moment you put your faith in his son. And so what we've been looking at in this section is, is what kind of helps, especially last week, what kind of helps has God provided us while we remain on this earth and as we go through trials and suffering. And, and so we realize that, that one of the helps that he provides us is, is a focus, is where are you occupied. You, you've got this future confident expectation. The Bible calls that hope. It's not, well, I hope I'll get to heaven or I'll hope I'll be glorified. No, biblical hope is a confident expectation. It's a future looking forward that we're confidently expecting that one day we're going to be completely delivered from the presence of sin. That is a glorious day. It's something that we ought to be looking for. In fact, we looked in Romans 8, the, the creation is looking forward to that day. Even this, the waterfalls and the mountains and all the things that we, and I haven't even looked at this calendar, but I bet it's got pretty pictures on there. Everything in creation, that's looking forward to the day that you'll be glorified. And so we have that hope, this confident anticipation, and, and that hope and that confidence toward the future should impact the way that we respond to, to life's trials and sufferings. It should help us get through the sufferings of the present time. The other thing that we see is that the greatest tool that God has provided is an indwelling spirit called the Holy Spirit, a person of the Trinity, God himself indwelling you, interceding for you, praying for you, even when you don't know how to pray, the spirit of God is saying, I got this. <laughs> I'm taking care of this for you. I know how to pray for you. And not only does the spirit of God pray for you, but he prays according to the will of God. That's what we saw in verse 27. And that brings us to verse 28, which one commentator, I think rightfully called verse 28 is a soft pillow for a tired heart. I think it's a great summary of verse 28. And so as we get into verse 28, let's read it. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And, you know, we see this word and, and anytime we're, we're studying the Bible, we want to kind of keep track of these types of words because they kind of keep us going in the flow of what's been said, and they kind of provide context. And so this and is, is simply building on this previous truth that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and helps us when we're weak in our understanding of life's trials and sufferings um, in our life. 
Okay, that's what we just came out of. That's verse 26, that's verse 27. And so he says, and, and he goes on to to build on this. He's gonna say that we know something. Uh, He's gonna say that we know that all things work together for good. And, And the way that he verbalizes this in the Greek is he says this is something that we know and we continue to know. It's, a, it's an ongoing knowledge that we've gained at a point in time. And I find this, this progression interesting because verse 26, he says, we don't know what we should pray. Verse 27 says, but God knows what to pray. And then in verse 28, we can know what's going on as it relates to life trials and suffering. And obviously the spirit of God is the one who's going to have to make this real and true in our life. Because if you're anything like me, and I would assume that you are, when something goes wrong in your life, immediately you say, why God, why me, why now get it out of my life? That's, that's the typical response to trial. We, we don't like trials. We don't just sit there and say, yeah, bring it on. This is great. You know, bring more. Pile it on. This isn't enough. I, I'm just getting so much pleasure out of being hurt and going through trials and sufferings and being irritated and being emotionally disturbed. We don't actually do that. But this is something that we can know, that all of these things work together for good. This is really, is gonna, we're going to show it's the divine perspective on life's trials and sufferings. Now, it begs the question, all things, like really, all th- like really, all things. Are you serious? It, he he can't possibly mean all things, right? John, tell me something in the Greek that doesn't that means that he doesn't mean all things. I'm sorry, it's not it's not there. He says all things. He's talking about all things. Now, notice specifically that he says he doesn't say that all things are good. Okay, look at look at the text again. He says that he works all things together for good, but he doesn't say that all things are good. So I'm not standing before you today and and trying to convince you that sin is good, that the consequences of sin is good, that tragedy is good. I think we all know the, the source of tragedy, the causes of tragedy are Satan, sinful choices of people, the consequences of living in a, in a sinful world. Those are the all things that he's talking about here. But you might, you might verbalize it this way. God is the great lemonade maker, right? You've heard that, that saying, right? Life's going to throw you lemons, so make lemonade. And, and God's the great lemonade maker. He can take lemons. And he can even take tomatoes. And he can even take uh, rotten oranges, and grind all that together, put it in the process, and he can work it together for your good. And that's what this verse is talking about. But notice that all things, and, and again, when we talk about all things, we're talking about good, bad, neutral, success, failure, whatever you want to throw into that mix, that they work together or cooperate, help or aid or contribute to an end goal. And so what we're going to see is that God has got an end goal. And he's, he's going through this, this section here in Romans to convince you that his end goal for you is good. It's called glorification. And he's going to right here, when we get into verse 29 and 30, he's also going to con- try to convince us that it is a sure thing for you if you've ever put your faith in Jesus Christ. Glorification is yours because God's going to do it. In fact, what we're going to look is that in God's mind, even though it hasn't happened in time, he's already going to say it's a completed event. 
Because that's how God does things, right? Does, does God not know the beginning from the end? Can he not call things which are not as though they were? We looked at that earlier in Romans. And so we're going to see how he puts this together. But just to investigate this, this claim that all things God is working together for good, uh, I want to use uh, just an illustration. And you'll, you'll follow this illustration. A story was told of a young boy uh, who was told by his mom that she was going to make a cake for the family. And so as she was getting all the ingredients out on the counter, she realized, oh, I don't, I don't have enough milk in the fridge, so I'm going to go down to the, the second refrigerator and get some more milk. You wait here, and then we'll start making the cake. And the boy, as a young man, said, man, this is cake. I'm going to start trying all these ingredients. And so he, he cracks an egg open. He dips his finger in the egg. And he's like, oh, this is disgusting. He takes a little bit of the flour. He throws that in. He's like, this is gross takes a little bit of the sugar. He's like, that's pretty good. Let me get another one of those. And he throws the sugar in. Then he goes to the vanilla extract and he says, well, it smelled good, but that's really gross too. And he began to taste each one of these ingredients all by themselves. And by the time of the taste test, he said, mom, I don't think I want any of that cake. That's going to be awful. But you know, as well as I do, that when you take those individual ingredients, you mix them together, out comes something beautiful. And see, I think that's a great illustration of that verse. One commentator, William Newell, put it this way. He says that that this all things involves that billion, billion control of God's providence, of the most uh, infinite, I knew I was going to mess that one up, infinitesimal things uh, to bring them about for good to God's saints. Now, when we reflect on the innumerable things about us, now think about this. How just how, how in control God is for him to be able to say all things he's working together for good. Forces seen and unseen of the mineral, vegetable, and animal worlds, of man at enmity with God, of Satan and his principalities and power in deadly array, and the uncertainty and even treachery of those near and dear to us, and even of professed Christians and of our own selves, which we cannot trust for a moment, upon our unredeemed bodies, upon our general complete helplessness, then to have God say, all things are working together for your good. This reveals to us a divine providence that is absolutely limitless. We see that, that God, according to this, work, work, this word, working all things together for our good, he's got an end goal in mind. The great thing about his end goal, it's, it's singular in intention. It's goodness. It's, good, it's goodness for you. And, and so many times something happens in our life and we say, God, why did you do that to me? You're trying to hurt me. You're trying to, you're trying to take this away from me, Lord. You're, you're not letting me get to where I'm trying to go, Lord. You're always in the way. I remember I, I told a guy one time, he was a friend of mine I had met in college and um, he was an unbeliever. And I told him that I had gotten out of baseball. And one of the reasons I had left baseball, retired from baseball is because I wanted to pursue further theological education. And his response was, man, God screws up everything. And, and you know, I, I laughed because it really caught me off guard. But you know, in a practical way, have you ever done that through your thinking? Have you ever done that in the way that you've responded to a trial? Well, man, I had this going, but there's God again, screwing it up. I guess he's got some lesson to teach me. Psh, you know, what's up, God? What, what's your problem? Why are you doing this to me? And, and we may not even verbalize that word, but our attitude says exactly those things. 
And you know, I want you to know whether or not we can understand all the, the individual ingredients that come to our life. The Bible says that God's end goal for you is goodness. Why did he allow this? I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I really, I, I'm at a loss. I, I can't even explain why God allows everything in my life. But I can rest in the fact as I go back to Romans 8, 28, and this is why it's there in the Bible. He wants goodness for you. He's, he's working toward this end goal of goodness. So this means that God's will, this is very important, and that the Spirit's intercession and the believer's true desire is all the same. Don't you want goodness for your life? <laughs> you know, Psalm 23, he, he talks about the, the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, and he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He was convinced of the truth. The great psalmist David was convinced of this truth. Do you know that, that that's your ultimate desire too, is goodness? God's best for you? And so you say, well, where's the conflict come in? Uh, well, I, I think as one person said, and, and I'll just quote them, I mean, it's a great quote. We, we must not confuse God with life. And so many times that's what we do. Something happens to us and we lay the blame at God's feet. And there's a lot of other things going on in this world. We've got enemies after us. We've got our own self in the way. We've got the sinful choices of people around us. We've got consequences from our own sin. We've got all these things swirling around. And sometimes I think we confuse the, the negative aspects of life, death, trials, and suffering. And we confuse that with God. And see, God can take all of those things and mix it together and cause them to come together for good. You know where the conflict, I believe, arises for the believer is when God doesn't get us to his end goal the way we think he should get us to the end goal. That's really when the conflict arises. This is where our lack of understanding of, of all of these minute things coming into our life, how could this be allowed in our life to contribute to goodness, my ultimate goodness. And, and we have a problem with that. That's where the issue comes in. That's where the, the resistance comes in. In fact, you know, verse 26 told us point blank, we don't know how to pray. It doesn't say if or at that moment we don't know how to pray, then the Spirit will pray for us. It just says you don't know how to pray. We, we don't know how to pray as it comes to life, life's trials and sufferings. Because like I said last week, who would sit there and, and literally when we pray and we're going through a trial, a painful trial, painful suffering, who would literally pray, Lord, keep it coming. Keep, just keep bringing it. Don't let me out of this thing. I, I just, I just, I'm just enjoying this. Uh, no, all, all of us, the typical prayers, get it out of here, get it out of here quickly. Uh, by any means necessary, just get it, just go, right? And so we don't know how to pray. How do we think that we understand how to interpret the all things of life? We... We just flat out don't many times. In fact, another illustration, this is uh, of a man in China who raised horses for a living. And I think you'll, you may see yourself in this story. I mean, I could definitely relate to it. He says, uh, the story goes, when one of his prized stallions ran away, his friends gathered at his home to mourn his great loss. After they expressed their concern, the man raised this question, how do I know whether what happened is good or bad? A couple of days later, the runaway horse returned with several strays following close behind. 
The same acquaintances again came to his house, this time to celebrate his good fortune. But he asked the question, but how do I know whether it's good or bad? The old gentleman asked them, and that very afternoon, the horse kicked the owner's son and broke the young man's leg. Once more, the crowd assembled now to express their sorrow over the incident. But he asked again, how do I know if this is good or bad? The father said. A few days later, war broke out. The man's son was exempted from military service because of his broken leg. Again, the friends gathered. And you could take that story on and on and on. But you, you see the illustration. Many times we don't know how to interpret the all things of life. We, we get one data point, one trial, one suffering, and we begin to try to interpret how that's going to work together for good. And many times we, we don't know, but we jump to conclusions. And from a human perspective, we certainly don't know how to interpret the all things of life. But this is not a human perspective verse. This is a divine perspective verse, Romans 8, 28. And so even if you're unsure of how to put together what's going on in life, rest assured in one thing, in hope. And that's in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. God recorded a message for you. And that message is simply this, the all things of life are working together for your good. That's what he's about. That's what he's going to do. And his end goal, as we're going to see, that final end goal is going to be our glorification when he completely fulfills that goodness to us. We're going to see that when we see Jesus and when we have our new glorified bodies. Now, one of the things we want to look at too, and I've already kind of given this away and my understanding of this verse, but let's look at it a little bit closer. Who is this promise made to? That's what we want to look at. We just want to verify that it's made to Believers, And so verse 28 says, we know that all things work together for good. And then he uses these two phrases to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Okay, so we've got to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's who this promise is made to. And so who are these people? Well, before we start really investigating, we want to see that contextually we see that this, these two phrases refer to the same group. Okay, we're not talking about two separate groups, but the ones who love God, the ones who are the called according to his purpose, that's the same group of people that he's talking about here. And so do we get any uh, contextual clues as to who these people are? Well, what have we been talking about in Romans chapter eight? We've been talking about believers. We've been talking about those in whom the spirit of God dwells, those in whom the spirit of God aids, those in whom the spirit of God intercedes for. And so I believe we're talking about believers, that this is a promise only for believers, This is a promise for children of God, heirs of God, as we've been looking at in Romans chapter eight. And this is what God is working, uh, is working all things together for our good. In fact, we we know from 1 John 4, 19, um, I'm just going to throw these out here. You can write those down if you'd like. But we know that believers are described as those who love God. Now, do we love God perfectly every day of our life? If you say yes, I'd like to meet you and uh, rub shoulders with you a little bit, and hopefully it, it'll rub off on me. But no, we don't love God perfectly, but we do love God. First John 4.19 says that we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And so it's a description of believers to those who love God. And then um, if you will, you can turn with me, or again, I'll read it. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, we see that there's, there's really, if you want to call it, three classes of people in the world, there's, there's unsaved Jews, there's unsaved Gentiles, and then there's saved 
Jews and Gentiles, which form one group. And, and you're going to see in, in this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, that he's going to identify saved Jew and Gentile as the called, the called, which is the description that we have in Romans 8, 28. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 says this, but we preach Christ crucified uh, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but verse 24, but to those who are called, there's our, our phrase, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so as we look to who this promise is, is for, I believe this promise is for believers. In fact, if we stay right in the context of Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is going to refer to this purpose, this purpose of God as being conformed to the image of Christ. This is a glorification concept. Um, and so this clearly speaks of believers. This is not talking about an unbeliever being conformed to the image of Christ. And so all of this fits together. And so rather than this being a, a group of a certain special class of faithful Christians, some may teach that, I believe that this is referencing all believers. So this promise, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is for you today, that God is working all things together for your good as an end goal. And, you know, I think it's such an important truth. You know, the Bible devotes nine chapters to illustrate this truth in the book of Genesis. Remember the guy named Joseph? Isn't he an illustration of the all things in life working together for his ultimate good? I mean, you've got a, 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 a young man who's sold into slavery by his, by his own brothers who then is, is uh, kind of begins to rise up in the realm of a, of a slave and becomes the, the, the right-hand man of one of the most powerful men in Egypt. And then he gets accused of chasing his, his wife and trying to seduce her to have an affair. And so then he gets, he's falsely accused, by the way. Um, he gets thrown into prison. We see that he's stuck there. He interprets a couple of dreams for a couple of people. Um, and then he asked them to, hey, remember me, try to get me out of here. And they forget about him for two years. And then finally, he gets the opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And then he's made the second in command. And you think, wow, that's a story from rags to riches. You know, God was doing something much more behind the scenes. He was protecting his nation because now he's got a man in place who can distribute grain to whom he will. And he personally takes his family, even though they had sold him up the river, and try and try to try to convince his dad that he was dead. Joseph showed kindness and brought them into his care, and he was in a position to do so. See, God was working all those things together for good. And, and you know what? Joseph understood it too because he tells his brother, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." And it just illustrates this truth personally and very just uh, distinctly. Now, as we move into Romans 8, 29 and 30, we, we come into this section. Let's, um, let's read it and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about it here. Uh, let's read the whole thing. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed uh, to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And, and as I've said before, and just try to bring up from time to time, when we see that word for in the scriptures, understanding he's further explaining something. He's, he's trying to give us some additional information about what he just said. And so now he's going to give us the reason why we know. Remember he said in verse 28, we know 
that all things work together for good. Now he's going to give us the reason why we know. In fact, he's going to answer this question. How can we know that God works all things together for good? How do we know that? Well, he's going to go in and explain. And, and what he's going to do is he's going to use this, um, these five words that, that form kind of an unbreakable link that we're going to see here in, these, in this section. And those five words are foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. He's going to show that those are five links in an unbreakable chain. And um, what we want to note in, in that that may be Greek to you, Aristens, and that's, that's good because that is Greek, but um, let's, let's make it un-Greek. Aristens just means a point in time completed action. So when we look at all these words, just remember that God is saying these are all things that are done. They're completed. They're finished. Even glorification, which is still yet future, yes. It's, it's a completed thing. God can speak of your glorification as a done deal because he is making a promise he's gonna accomplish it. In your life. And so that's what we're looking at as we dive in. And just remember the whole purpose for Paul going into this list is to show that God is always, always, always determined to guarantee your full salvation. See, there's, there's no part of salvation that's dependent upon you, your faithfulness, your ongoing faith, your ongoing faithfulness or good works in your life. This is a done deal the moment you put your faith in Christ. And you say, well, that's not fair. That sounds like a free gift. It is a free gift. And it's not the kind of free gift that companies give you, buy one, get one free. How many of you have caught on to that nonsense? When you buy one, you're actually paying for the second one, or at least part of it. You're paying for the cost. They're not giving you anything for free. In fact, as my friend Rob, who spoke here a couple weeks ago, said, he said, go, just go into one of those places and say, hey, I don't want to buy anything, but I would like the free thing that you're giving away. That ain't going to work, is it? Buy one apple, get another one free. I'll just take the free one. I'm not, I don't want to buy that first one. That ain't going to work because it's not free. But you know what? Salvation's free. Salvation's a gift of God. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to, to maintain your ability to hold on to it. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again, your penalty has been paid. There's no penalty left to be paid. And God accepts you on the basis of the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so remember, Paul is going through this list not to cast doubt on your salvation, but to convince you that God has always determined he's gonna give you a full salvation. He's gonna do it to the bitter end, so to speak. And so we look at this first link. This is foreknowledge. And, and notice it starts with the word whom, verse 29, for whom he foreknew. He's talking about the believers that he just came out of verse 28 talking about, whom he foreknew. Now this word, we've gotta, we're gonna slow down a little bit on some of these words because this is one of those words um, in Christianity that gets, in, as they say, impregnated with a lot of extra meaning. And I would say some people impregnate this word with like triplets <laughs> and, and, and really try to drive home some extra meaning. When we look at the word for new, it's a Greek compound word from proginosko. So it's made up of two words. Pro is just a preposition meaning before. Ginosko is a word meaning to know. And so when you put it together, it means to perceive 
or recognize beforehand or to know previously. Now to say that God foreknows something should not be a shock to any one of us because God's all knowing, the Bible teaches. So of course he's going to know beforehand things that happen. He's not gonna be surprised you know, when the Vikings win the NFC championship today, he already knows they're going to win, right? And he's not going to be surprised when Tom Brady loses the NFC champion. He already knows that. No, I'm kidding. Sorry, little football reference. No, but, but he knew who was going to be saved. That's what this is saying. It, it simply states that God, who's all-knowing, knew believers before they were saved. He knew beforehand the ones that would be saved. Now, this has nothing to do with selecting people to be saved. That's what a Calvinistic theology would teach, is that he elects some or chooses some, and that he chooses others or doesn't choose them, they would actually say, um, to go to hell. Um, what we're going to see here is, is that foreknowledge doesn't mean he caused or determined what happened, but simply that he knew what was going to happen. That's what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge doesn't mean that he made it happen. Um, you know, there are things that I have foreknowledge of. And I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a prophet or anything, but I will tell you this, when I see my five-year-old load up a paper plate full of chips, like the whole bag, and it's this high, and I then see him take that plate and start to the living room, you know what I know is going to happen before it happens? He's gonna spill that plate, isn't he? And I'm not even God, and I've got a little foreknowledge on that. But you know what else it doesn't mean? Because I knew it, I'm not waiting at the couch, I'm not tripping him on his way. I didn't cause him to spill his chips. Five-year-oldness causes him to spill his chips. Five-year-oldness causes him to load his entire plate up to a point where nobody could carry that plate to the living room without spilling it. And so when we talk about foreknowledge, try not, try not to allow someone to take you that next step, which is, which you don't have to take that next step. Foreknowledge simply means that God knew something beforehand. Can we just agree to the definition of the world word? And then when we go to the second word, predestined, we'll talk about foreordination. What did God determine to do beforehand? We'll get there, but I also want you to notice the word also in verse 29. Um, he says that whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So right there, he's telling you that foreknowledge is not the same as predestination. It's a separate step. It's a separate link that he's talking about there. And so as we look at this uh, idea of foreknowledge, what we're going to see is this. All the way back then, remember, we're going through this end goal that God has got this end goal of glorification. All he's starting to say is that all the way back then, God predetermined and he already decided what his end goal would be for those whom he knew. Now, is that simple to understand? I think that when God says, I'm going to have this, this new race of humanity, which we're going to look at here in a second, because that's when we're talking about being conformed to the image of Christ. He's creating a new race of humanity, those who are going to be resurrected from the dead into glorified bodies. And guess who the firstborn of that race was? Jesus Christ, none other than Jesus Christ. And God is creating a race of humanity that's going to be just like Jesus in that sense, a glorified body, raised from the dead, eternal life, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be happening. But God just determined that when somebody was going to put their faith in this coming deliverer, he was going to save them to the uttermost. 
That's what we're looking at this morning. And so we move into that second word, predestined, which just gives a lot of people the shakes when they hear it. Because what they think this word means is that God selected some to go to heaven and he selected others to go to hell. Now, that's, that's the truth of what that doctrine teaches. A lot of them try to soften it and say, well, no, he selected some, but then he, just because he didn't select others, he didn't really destine them to hell. Well, how, can you, how could you say that? How could you say that? It'd be like me going to an orphanage and saying, uh, anybody, whosoever will, wants to be adopted and come home with me. And I just, I just come into an orphanage and, and a room full of young kids. And we, we had that opportunity in Liberia to visit an orphanage. And I, I look forward to seeing them in a couple of weeks. But you come into this room and if I were to tell those kids, anybody that wants to come home with me to America, I'm going to take you. Whosoever will, whosoever believes me can come with me. And then I go in a back room with the, with the uh, lady that's there that runs the place. And I say, okay, I'm, I'm going to take him. I'm going to take her. I'm going to take him and I'm going to take her. That's not a whosoever will. That's, that's a lie. If I were to come in and say, whosoever one of you orphans want to come home with me, you can come. But then I go in a back room and pick four of them. I just lied to that whole group. And so you got to put the scriptures together. When the Bible says, whosoever will believe has eternal life, that means anybody. That means it's available to all. And so when we get to the word predestination, don't just, don't just cower your head and go, ooh, man, the, the election thing's right, you know? It's not right. In fact, let's look at it a little bit more closely. This, this word predestined, uh, again, a compound word in the Greek, pro or rizo. The word pro means before. The word horizo means to determine. And so the word itself means to determine or to decree beforehand, literally to mark out beforehand the limits or boundaries. And when it's used of a person, it usually speaks of their future destiny, determining what their future destiny would be. And so from, what, from the context, let's look at verse 29. What does God or what did God determine or decree beforehand? What did he determine was going to happen? Well, according to verse 29, he predestined uh, those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his son. And, and, and here's what's an interesting thing about this word. This is not speaking of our justification. This is speaking of our glorification. We're going to see this elaborated on in verse 30. When you talk about being conformed to the image of his son, that is a glorification term. This is not God picking some people to go to heaven and picking other people to go to hell or predetermining that only these people will go to heaven and predetermining that these people will go to hell. That has nothing to do with this verse. And yet the second you see predestined, we hang our heads and we go, oh man, I guess it's true. He likes some, he likes, it's, this is too grand. This is not even what this is teaching. In fact, if you look up the word predestined, just go take a Strong's Concordance. I would encourage you, do this on your own. Go take a Strong's Concordance, look up this word pro or rezo. Go look where it's used elsewhere in the Bible and you're gonna find this word is never used of justification, never used of justification, never used of how someone avoids hell and goes to heaven. Never used that way. It's always used of glorification. And that's why when we go to Ephesians 1.5 and it says that we've been predestinated to adoption as sons, that too is a glorification term as we've looked at in Romans 8. It's talking about an inheritance. 
So this idea that God is offering salvation to all, but then only selecting a few, it's nonsense. It's not biblical. And yet it's gained a lot of steam in our day. And I would encourage you, and I typically don't name name names from the pulpit because it's not an effort to think that we're better than somebody or, or not. But I just want you to be aware of some people who are very popular that teach these things, namely John MacArthur, John Piper, R.C. Sproul and others, but those are probably the three biggest names that teach this doctrine. And you can find their books and you can find their, their, their sermons online and you can listen to a lot of things. And, and at, many t- at many points, they're biblical in what they teach, but this is the underlying thought that they have, that the word all doesn't mean all. Then when it says that God sent his son to die for the sins of the world, that the world, word world doesn't mean world. It only means a select few. They, they actually believe that God could go into an orphanage and say, whosoever will, and then go in a back room and just select who he wants to bring with them. See, that's not biblical, friends. In fact, I believe that's an assault on the character of God. So God, knowing believers, so let's go on with our study here. God, knowing believers from eternity past, what did he predetermine? He predetermined that each one of them would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This word conformed, is a Greek, another compound word. Paul's really going after it here. Sum morphos. It means to be shaped together with or morphed together with Christ into his image. It's, uh, in fact, this, this, the first preposition there, it's actually S-U-N. Um, it means with. It, it describes a unity. We're going to be conformed with Christ to his image. There's a, there's a unification. You know, when we talk about identification back in Romans 5, remember we said some people that, that teach Romans 1 through 8, they'll skip 5, 12 through 21 because they're like, where does this identification thing fit? It fits. It's the basis for a lot of what God is promising and the mechanics behind how God is accomplishing things. And so you and I as believers, God has predetermined to conform you to Christ's image. That is going to happen. God's going to get the deal done. God is going to accomplish those things. So he started the process now, but he's also predetermined that he's going to finish the process. There's no half-completed projects in God's garage, right? Like, like many of us. <laughs> we get the project started. We don't complete it. We run out. We have the wrong tool. We never get it. God's not that way. He's going to complete what he starts Now, why did God decide to do this? What purpose? Well, go back uh, to the passage because you're going to see this word that. He said he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That, that gives us our purpose clause. What was he trying to do? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And so to put that together, what we're saying is that God from eternity past foreknew believers. He predetermined that each believer would be conformed to the image of his son. And why did he do that? What was the purpose? He wanted to start a new race of humanity, beginning with his son as the head. That's what he's doing here. Jesus Christ would be the firstborn in terms of position, time, prestige, and preeminence. In this new race of resurrected and glorified believers, we read a little bit about it in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Uh, through 23. And he writes this, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, meaning there's more to come. That's by definition, that's what first fruits means. 
For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ uh, all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are at Christ at his coming. And so you see the believer is part of a new race. This is why God is predetermined to conform us to the image of his son as he is establishing a new race of humanity, those who are resurrected from the dead and those who have glorified bodies. And so these believers whom God foreknew would be a part of this new family. These are, uh, again, the many brethren referred to here in this passage. And so not only do we see that we were foreknown and that we were predestined to glorification or being conformed to the image of Christ, but we also see that, that God called us. And, and the Greek word called is kaleo. It means to call someone in order that he may come or go somewhere. Nothing really significant. We, we can read that word and kind of know what it means in English. But what we see from the scriptures is that God has called believers many ways. Uh, and let's just look at a few. This is not an exhaustive list. And for sake of time, we're going to move pretty quickly through here. But you know that the God has called believers into fellowship with him? You know, he didn't just, you know how that is. Uh, you know, he didn't just save you and like put you in a back room and say, yeah, I'll come get you when it's time to go. But he, he saved you and he brought you into fellowship with him. You know, it's like, it's like if you have somebody, uh, you, you extend hospitality and you, and you have somebody stay in your house and then you say, yeah, um, you know, there's that back room back there. And, and when you're hungry, we'll bring you some food there. And when you want coffee, we'll bring you some coffee. And when you need to go to the bathroom, we'll, we'll come and show you where the bathroom is. And, but, but you just go ahead and stay over there. You know, there's a difference between, I mean, that's hospitality. I mean, at least you're putting a roof over their head and feeding them and taking care of their needs. There's something different between that and say, having somebody in your house saying, hey, come out here, we're gonna have some coffee. Come sit with us, come, come hang out with us, come enjoy dinner at the table with us. There's, there's just an, a relational aspect of intimacy there. And so when we talk about God calling believers into fellowship with him, that's what we're, we're talking about. We see that God has called believers uh, by the gospel. Obviously, we weren't always believers. Nobody, nobody's born a Christian. Nobody's always believed in God. That's, those, those statements right there should expose that you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. If you think that you're a Christian, you're not a Christian because you were born in a Christian family, just like you're not a doctor if you go stand in the hospital for eight hours. You know, that doesn't make you a, or you're not a doctor because you were born in a hospital, right? That's, that would be another thing that happens. You've got to work toward that. So um, the point is this, you're not a, you're not a Christian just because you were born in a uh, Christian family. At some point, somebody shared the gospel with you and you put your faith in Christ. God's also called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, according to 1 Peter. He's called us to liberty, according to Galatians 5. God's called believers to have peace, his peace, ruling in our hearts, not just showing up from time to time, but actually ruling in our hearts. That would be helpful during trials. Uh, he's called us not to uncleanness, but to holiness. And he's also called us to suffer. And again, not an exhaustive list, but this is why in verse 28, when Paul refers to believers, he uses that synonym, the called ones. You remember that back in verse 28, he said, those who are the called according to his purpose. And the, the best way I can describe that is, um, we don't, of course, we don't do this anymore because our society has changed so much. But remember, those of you that grew up in a time in America where you could actually leave your house as a young person, go down the street, 
play with your friends. And then mom or dad, whoever had the, either the loudest whistle or the loudest voice would come out and say, you know, dinner time, supper time. Hey, time to come home. Something like that. It would make a call to the neighborhood. Now, the way that worked, at least when I grew up, and we still lived in, in those, I still lived in those times, um, was when I heard my dad's voice, I, I went home. I responded to his call. But I also heard my friends' dads and moms calling them, and I didn't go to their house. I didn't, I didn't respond to them, nor did the entire neighborhood ever respond to my dad's voice and come to our place and eat supper. My brother and I did. And so in that sense, we were the called. Now, now the call was made to everybody, but because we responded and we went home to eat, we could have been called the called. And so I believe that's exactly what's happening here because does God only call believers? Well, no, very clearly from the scriptures, God makes the call to salvation to everyone. But does everyone respond to that call? No, we, we clearly see that too. In fact, do you know what the one sin that can send you to hell is? It's not homosexuality. It's not voting Democrat in the next election. It's none of those awful things. No, I'm just kidding. But, it's, but it's, it's that, that just skews the issue. Because sin is sin in God's eyes. He's a holy God who cannot look upon sin. There's a penalty for all sin. A penalty has to be paid. You know, the one sin that can send you to hell, it's unbelief. You reject Jesus Christ. You never put your faith in Jesus Christ. That can send you to hell. Because guess what? Then you are responsible for paying the penalty for your sins. And God doesn't want you to have to do that. He's gone through great lengths so that you would never have to pay that penalty. But if you reject Jesus as the only way to get to heaven, you'll pay that penalty on your own. And it's in a place that's called eternal death. Uh, It's referred to as the lake of fire in the Bible, but you don't have to go there. That's the good news of the gospel. But that is the only thing that can send somebody to hell. And so we see that God calls to the unbeliever through the gospel and that he makes this opportunity available to all. Then we go on to this fourth link, this, this idea of justified. Verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. We looked a lot at this word when we were studying the first four and a half chapters of the book of Romans. This is really what that whole section's about is this justification. And so how does God declare a person righteous? How does the God of the universe slam his gavel down and say, you have the righteousness equal to mine to enter into heaven and your sins are paid for? How does that process take? Well, we just looked at that um, a, a little bit, or we just talked about it um, in, in the first four and a half chapters, went into detail, but let me just read a couple of verses, and I think it becomes clear. Romans three twenty one through 22, uh, after describing that the entire world is guilty before God, he says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. You see, righteousness isn't gained by keeping the law, improving your serve, so to speak, getting better, doing better, stop doing bad things, these kind of things, come to church, pray more, do, do all of these good works. That is not how you get to heaven. 
There's a righteousness apart from doing. In fact, as Romans 4, 5 goes on to say, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies, there's our word, the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God is in the business of justifying, declaring righteous, ungodly people. The people that think they have it all together that don't need God's declaration of righteousness, they're out there trying to do it on their own. And many of them think they're succeeding. That's what's, that's what's sad about this. Because Romans 4, 5 says, if you want to go to heaven, don't try to get there on your own. Stop working and start trusting. Trust in the work that somebody else accomplished on your behalf. It's not that you're being lazy. It's that you realize you can't do enough to gain God's favor. You cannot do enough to merit heaven. In fact, nobody would merit heaven if based on their own ability to do good things and to stop doing bad things. That's why we give up and we trust in the one who died for us and rose again. Because he did everything for you that needed to be done. Jesus Christ worked. Jesus Christ accomplished a great work. Not only did he die for your sins, but he did it in such a way that God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. And he raised him from the dead to prove it to you, to prove it to me. And so when we talk about justification before God, we see in Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, if you want to be declared righteous in God's sight, you have to put your faith in his son and what he did for you. That's it. It's not about going to church more. It's not about getting religion. You can drink all the grape juice in the world that you want to drink. You could eat the rest of the crackers and the plates that are left over up here. That's not going to get you one ounce closer to heaven. It may get you closer to the bathroom, but it's not going to get you closer to heaven. We are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then we finally see this fifth link, uh, glorification. In verse 30, these he, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And this is the purpose of this great chain link of events that Paul is going through. He wants to tell you that the goodness that God works out in your life is going to complete itself at this stage. God is going to accomplish glorification in your life. And I, this word is one of those words that you define it by using the word. So it doesn't really help you too much. But you go on to say, what does this word mean? It means to glorify. But the word came to mean to recognize, to honor, to praise, to invest with dignity. I like that phrase about this, by putting someone into an honorable position. Now, those of you that know yourselves well, do you deserve to be put into an honorable position when you get to heaven? Do you deserve that? There might be some in this room struggling. Well, yeah, I kind of I do. I really clean my, my act up. No, biblically, you don't. I, I don't. I, in fact, if we're being honest with ourselves, none of us deserve this place. We, in fact, we'd always be able to think of somebody else that's probably more deserving than us. But you know that God in this situation doesn't care what you think about yourself. He only cares what he's predetermined he's going to do. He is going to put you in an honorable position because he has your goodness in mind. So that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of salvation that he's provided. It, you don't merit it at the beginning. You're not going to merit it at the end. And is it any wonder that we're going to be in heaven for eternity, singing the praises of our great Savior and never get bored of that? 
Because I think we're going to realize even more than we do right now how unworthy, how undeserving, how we should not be there. And we're going to have this, this, this uh, temptation every day for, the, for eternity to pinch ourselves and say, am I really here? Doesn't this all-knowing God know what I think? Doesn't this all-knowing God know where I failed? Doesn't this all-knowing God know how hypocritical I've been in my life? How in the world am I here? And then there's going to be Jesus walking across the street, and I'm going to say, oh, yeah. It's because of that man right there and what he did for me. And see, that's going to be an incredible day. And you don't deserve this honorable position, but you know what? God has determined to put you there. So live with that for eternity. (laughs) So to wrap up this chain link of completed actions, according to his good pleasure, we see that each believer will be glorified. In fact, although it's yet future, God speaks of it as something that's already done. You know, God completes what he starts. We see that in Philippians 1, 6. And so what led Paul to write these grand truths? Well, you can have hope. You can have confident expectation as a believer because you know that God has already accomplished your entire salvation. See, that should help you. That's one aspect that can help you in the trials and sufferings of this present life. Knowing these things gives us a heavenly perspective on these trials and suffering. So I pray this morning um, that that would just be a special encouragement to you. And I, I think it's one of those, one of those truths that I, we've just got to wrap our minds around at some level. And that is, we got to stop viewing life and eternity through our own perspective, according to our own thinking. Typically, when you come out with your own thinking, your own ideas, when it comes to the Bible, you're typically wrong. So just assume that that's probably the case and that God maybe has something much greater for you to think about in a much greater way to view what's happening in and around you. And this is just one of those sections that we get to rejoice in that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for uh, Jesus Christ and um, what he's done for us and, and the, the things that he accomplished for us on the cross, the way that he continues to work uh, in our lives, the way that the Spirit of God be, uh, continues to, to do things for us by indwelling us, by leading us, by conforming us to your image by occupying our minds with your son by interceding for us and and a host of other things that I uh, don't have time to mention we just are so grateful uh, to you in the way that you are working in our lives and uh, we just pray that this week that as we go through and we know trials and suffering uh, is is the life that we live that's where we live on planet earth we'll probably experience some this week Uh, May you immediately draw our attention back to your truth so we might rest uh, in what we studied today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.